You're listening to the DC Real Estate Podcast, the podcast where we focus exclusively on all things local to the DMV area. Local investors, local knowledge, local experts. Our journey starts now. Welcome back to this week's episode of the DC Real Estate Podcast. My name is Russell Brazil. I am an associate broker with Arlo Real Estate. This week, we are continuing our conversation uh, from last week with Natalie Colley, and we are continuing that conversation, all things tax. And so uh, let's jump right back into that. See, and this is... <laughs> Like I was just talking to Russell about one of my, like not my favorite things, but I see some weird stuff on returns. And just recently I had a return where their prior accountant, just a typo, right? A typo that happens to everyone. But for mortgage interest on a property that had $4,000 in rent, um, they added some extra numbers. So instead of $1,500 of mortgage interest, it was $1.5 million, (laughs) $1.5 million of mortgage interest, a loss of $1.2 million. Their income was too high, so they didn't get to deduct it, luckily. But, like, their accountant didn't notice a $1.5 million expense on a $40,000 rental. Uh, he didn't notice either and signed off on the tax return. Uh, yeah, that's like, you should know, like, why am I losing a million dollars? Like, I'd be alarmed, like, that I actually maybe had lost a million dollars. It was true. Like, but it was actually true. Like, oh, God, this is the end of me. I better, I better check my bank statement. $40,000 property, $1.2 million loss. I would say that's a bad investment. It was just so blatant. And that was a, a CPA prepared that return. Like, you need to look at them. There's just... Yeah, I don't know if it's the number itself. Like, yeah. That should be an alarm. Maybe. But I... I I sympathize though, because like there are times when I'm just working on a spreadsheet, right? And I am looking at it and then that, you know, it's adding up these numbers. I'm like, this is n- nowhere near right. And I'll look at that spreadsheet for an hour before I find the mistake. Like, and you've looked at it 20 times. You think you've read every line. It's very easy to, oh, yeah. to do this. Yeah. And I mean, any firm should have a, like a review process and especially a one point two eight million dollar deviation should have been a red flag but look at your returns and then there's other stuff that you know about your properties that your accountant just might not like little things it might be marked as a single family it's actually a duplex i don't know that looking at your 1098 or your hud statement from when you bought it because you only know the information that is provided to you you've never seen the properties um you don't know what's going on at them so you you're limited in your scope of what you know about the situation. Yeah, it cracks me up because like it's this careful balance too. I always do this like organizer or questionnaire. A lot of accountants do. People get annoyed because they're like, if I was going to fill out 20 pages of questions, I would just do my taxes myself. And I'm like, well, if I don't ask you these 20 pages of questions, I can't do your taxes. <laughs> and it's stuff like that. Like I need to know what the property is, what you did to it. what. And it's sort of like, I don't know what you're not telling me and you don't know what to ask. So you've really got to have these sort of bigger conversations with your accountant. We can't just take your numbers and like make magic happen. So what are some of the more, so we talked about that $1.2 million mistake or 1.5 million mistake, which led to a $1.2 million loss. What are some of the more entertaining mistakes that were, that you're seeing happening? Cause like you said, 40% of the returns you do from new clients, you need to amend because of the mistakes their previous tax professional made. Yeah. There's some weird ones. So like I said, one of the things is on depreciation, like not breaking out any part of a renovation. I just had a new client who has been buying two properties a year, every year for probably the last five or six years. And on every one, he does a major burr. So it's like a low property price and then like a $90,000 renovation cost on every single one. It is just listed as $90,000 over 27 and a half years. This year we went through and broke everything out and we got to write off like 
40 grand in this first year based on what he did to the property. So it's stuff like that. Um, another thing that happens is, are you guys familiar with delayed financing, paying your renovation into? Yeah. So if, if you're interested in delayed financing, there's actually a really good bigger pockets episode on it. I believe it's episode number three Oh one with Alex Felice. Uh, so if you're, if you want to understand what delayed financing is, we won't get too much into it, but listen to that episode. It's really good. That's what we do with our rental in Gaithersburg, effectively. With your rental. Yeah. That's correct. We did that. Um, but there's a specific caveat she's about to dig into with the renovation costs being wrapped into the purchase price. Yeah. So a lot of accountants, this is another problem with finding a tax professional, is they don't know real estate. So if you tell them, I'm doing a burr using delayed financing, they're just going to smile and nod. And like, What's a burr? Yeah. <laughs> If they don't get what you're literally doing, how are they going to account for it? So when an accountant sets up your depreciation, they look at your closing statement and they're like, okay, here's the total they spent on this property. And so I've had clients doing this delayed financing, which basically you're putting, you're paying for the rental, but then also you're putting your $50,000 for renovation into escrow as well. So it is also going to show up on your HUD or your Alta statement. I guess we didn't do it then. Which is a normal delayed financing, no renovation wrapped oh, into yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of accountants don't realize that that is something different or should still be a renovation cost separately. So I've had accountants where on multiple properties, they would just take that total. So it was this $100,000 purchase price, another $50,000 of renovations, and the accountants taking that one fifty dollars and splitting it between land and building. That new renovation doesn't need to have any amount of it backed out into land value. Because it's clearly not about the land. No, maybe, if there was, maybe if there was a driveway or... Well, but it's not existing structure. Oh, so right. we're putting so like that hundred thousand dollars, the existing house. Yeah, some of that's land cost, some of it's building. But then you are spending fifty thousand dollars in new renovations. You get to write off your full fifty thousand yeah. dollars or depreciate it in some. So way. it's either an expense or a capital improvement, yeah. depending what they did. But the entirety of that is going to be written off in some manner. Yeah, exactly. And so the accountant doesn't realize that's what's happening. And so instead of getting to deduct in some way your full fifty thousand dollar renovation. If they're using 80% building value, 20% land, you're getting shorted 20% of your renovation costs because they're marking it as non-depreciable. So it's stuff like that where... So in this case, you went back and amended the returns. How much more money did this guy get back because of this? Oh, it was close to 40 grand in one year that we were able to write off from going backwards because he had multiple properties. The accountant had been doing this on for multiple years. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Did you get like a cut of it? Oh, this is why I'd always hire out tax help. Yeah. Like there's just no way. I, I mean, if you, like, if you have like a W two job, if you have a W two job, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, this conversation like makes me a little lightheaded. Like, <laughs> this stuff. I'm honestly, just like, like I forgot I'm host, like a host on this. I've just been in full sponge. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I'm like watching Sarah like look at Natalie like. Like I'm, I'm sweating a little bit. Yeah. I'm like, wait, like, I think is, I might have to mend my taxes. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't even want to think about that. Just gonna that. start slowly rolling out of the room. When, when you said the one point two, yeah, literally, one point two million dollars. Like, if I saw that number at the point that I'm at in my investing career, if I saw a million dollars anywhere on any document of mine, I would be like. But you'd have to be reviewing it to see that. And like we just said, me and Jack, we sign what what our accountant tells us. To I, mean, sign. I do a lot. Right. I had a million dollar loss. Yeah. I think I catch that. But yeah, if it was off ten grand, I don't think I'd know. Yeah. No, and people don't look like I. Literally, so there's a form you sign that gives your accountant permission to file the tax you return. File. Yep. yep. Right. The eighty eight seventy nine. I had to add like a, a 
form before the form because people would sign that. I would file their return and literally like two weeks later, they'd be like, hey, can we go over this? I've got some questions. And I'm like, well, we can, but like. It's already, <laughs> it's already filed. It's done. You might not want to know. Like you just file. Yeah. It. So now there's an email that's like, look at your return, read it. Let's hop on a Zoom call. We're going to figure everything out. And then you can have that other form. The people just sign and go. So what question I had about um, uh, something that comes up a lot. I think I know the answer, but I'm actually not 100% sure. So if you have a, a flip and at mm-hmm. the end you keep it as rental, mm-hmm. how long do you have to keep it as rental for it to become a capital gain as opposed to if it's an intent to flip? Yeah, so this gets asked a lot. And this is um, this is what makes me crazy with the internet is people love giving like tax answers that don't include the sort of accept for or the like. Well, I don't either. There's just some guy on the internet that would be like, this is, I read the IRS website one time. Oh, all the time. One it's time. like, I'll show up and give a really detailed answer as a professional. And then some guy who works at like Jimmy John's is like, <laughs> actually, Natalie, I read an internet article. But on, Business Insider said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's never even Business Insider. It was like. Reddit. Reddit post. Had 42 <laughs> upvotes. So I. But flipping income, for those who don't know, is normally ordinary income. Yeah. You are in a business. It's just what you are selling happens to be a house. It's very painful for me. Yeah. <laughs> But there's sort of these one-offs, and it's largely based on your intention. So what I've had happen is I've literally had someone who owned several rentals. They always did a burr, and I had him on one of them. It literally didn't spend a day as a rental, but he bought this to be a rental from the beginning. That's how his agent ran all the comps. He had it set up just like all of his other properties. And then, like, as soon as the rental was finished, basically his agent came to him and was like, you know, I've got a friend looking in this area. They want to make you an offer on this house, and it was so good he sold it. We could call that capital gains because from the beginning, his intent wasn't buy this, resell for more money. If your intent was sort of to flip it and then you make it a rental, the general sort of safe consensus Mm -hmm. is a year. If you can show a year's worth of rental, then you can sell it and call it capital gains. But that's not just so a lot of flippers are like, oh, if the renovation takes me more than a year, I'm okay. They need to place it in service and use it as a rental. Yeah. And the time, if it is a, an actual flip, if you are a flipper and you do this more than a one-off, if it's sort of a weird- You show situation. three flips a year in your tax returns every year. Right. It's clearly what you are in the business of. You're in the business of flipping houses. Correct. If it is a genuine flip, holding it for a year- does not just magically change what it is. It doesn't make it capital gains. It just costs you a bunch of money and you're a crappy investor if it took you a year to flip something. I agree with that. Yeah. So don't do that either. This is one of those things of like, don't lose money to save on your taxes. So I've people seen like, this People before. like, I'm going to like lose 10000 It's like, you still, like, it's still, you still lost the money. Like, taxes, <laughs> boys get this wrong. You're saving your marginal tax. You're not saving 100%. You're saving the marginal if you were at... Well, it's like the if it's 24 tax bracket, 24% tax bracket and you lose, you know... Hundred thousand dollars. Right, it's not a hundred thousand dollars. You're saving. You're saving twenty five thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Like spend money if you need to, but like if your tax professional's best like money saving advice is like go buy a new car. That is not. That is not advice. That is not cars, any kind I of know, a strategy. Not not tax deductible. Well, sometimes cars are tax deductible, Why right? Um, sometimes cars are. So with cars, you can write off two different ways. You can write off the actual vehicle cost, um, and especially if it's over six thousand pounds, that's why they called it like the Hummer loophole when yeah. like big SUVs that were fancy came out. Um, or you can deduct a rate per mile and that's what most people do. And that's what saves most people more. Cause once you take an actual deduction, like if you write off the cost of your car, um, you can't switch to mileage later. So we can't like write off your $50,000 car year one. And then the rest of the time go to mileage after that first big write off the rest of your years, it's just like your maintenance and gas insurance. So 
actually for agents, this sometimes does make sense because a lot of agents trade in cars pretty often because you guys drive people around. For normal people, if you're going to keep a car for three or more years, often the mileage makes sense. And what sucks is if you drive the car personally at all, you've got to track your mileage anyway for that split. So it's that's like, why I like I use Mile IQ to track my business mm-hmm. stuff, but like I don't. I think mile IQ is kind of becoming the standard in the industry, right? Yep. Um, but you mentioned if it's 6,000 pounds or more, right? So when you see a real estate agent driving a BMW X6, which exceeds that weight limit, that is because they basically bought that with pre-tax money, right? So they're they're saving that tax difference on the entirety of the – but you still have to spend the money. like So like I, I, I highly considered doing that, buying an X6 because of the weight and – I just couldn't. I just can't get over the hump to pay that much money for a car. I can't get over. I need. I need something fast. I can't get six thousand. Yeah. I always wanted a Ford Transit. Well, those are actually cool. You can fit so much in those, those things. Cool. That's my dream. That's what that's Ray has. That's what Ray has. It's hard to see other people living your dreams. So if you, you if, if you want to uh, uh, win your way to Sarah's heart, this Ford van's the way to go. <laughs> oh yeah. Forget him. I don't want an Audi. I don't want anything like that. I want the city size Ford e-transit van. <laughs> Is that over 6,000 pounds? For sure. It's got to be, it's right? Be yeah. 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 Um, so let, let's bring it back. So we're talking about some, we're bouncing all over the place here, which is why we like it to be free flowing, right? So we just talked about the car deduction. One of the other great deductions I think we have for a number of businesses, but particularly for people in real estate is QBI qualified business income. And I, I feel like this is one of the most misinterpreted and least understood aspects of the tax code. And I don't know how many times I talk to real estate agents who are like, I have no idea what QBI so you is. You told me that Russell. And I, I, I was like, great. Yeah. Like, I thought this. I'm like, you just get, I was like, just between an agent, you get to duck extra money. I'm like, I do. Yeah. I had already agreed to be on the team, but you should leave it. You should have left yeah. it like that. <laughs> So tell us about QBI, uh, and after you, I, I want to talk sort of about the history where we came up with QBI. Yeah, so this was part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act a couple of years ago. Um, it is a 20% deduction on business income. So if you already have a loss, it's not going to help you further. Um, but if you have taxable income at the end of your, you know, deducting all of your expenses against your income, you get this QBI deduction. And it is on pass-through entities. Sort of the reason they did this was... C-Corps got lower tax rates, so to sort of level the playing field for anyone else, they gave us this write-off. Um, and there's some weird nuances to it and some limits, but a lot of agents qualify for this, and a lot of special service industries don't if you make over a certain amount. Um, so you guys kind of fought hard for your portion of this, yeah. but it's 20% on net income, and agent income, any kind of earned income qualifies, but also a lot of rentals qualify too, and their tax professionals don't know that. On rental properties, there's a safe harbor. That's like a list of things that says, like, check these boxes. If you meet A, B, C, and D, you can get this deduction. But the wording for this deduction is just any activity that rises to the level of a trader business, according to Internal Revenue Code 162. And that is literally just a continuous, ongoing involvement with the intent of profit. So I don't know anyone who's, like, buying properties just for fun. So, like, most rentals do qualify, and a lot of people don't take this deduction. Um, so when you're looking at your tax return, which we're all going to do this year before we sign the form and let our accountants file, it's good advice. (laughs) You guys are just going to email them to me. (laughs) Um, line 13, where it says QBI deduction. You'll also hear it called the 199A deduction. See if you have 
net profit anywhere related to a business or a rental, ask your accountant if there's not a number there, why? Like find out if you should have it or do qualify. Because most businesses, HVAC, you're an HVAC business. You get QBI, right? Yep. If you're below the limits. Yep. If you are, if you, um, I'm not 100% sure of this. Do you get it if you're a house flipper? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So right there. So in this, it's a 20% deduction. So when we get to service level employees that are generally white collar, there's really only one business in that sector that gets it. Doctors don't get it. CPAs don't get it. Lawyers don't get it. Real estate agents get it. Yeah, you guys have a better. Yeah. And uh, we have a very, very powerful lobby. So when this bill was being passed a few years ago under the Trump administration, um, the National Association of Realtors with um, our political action committee, RPAC, really, really lobbied hard to get realtors this deduction while other service level employees do not get it. I gotta say, it does seem like they shouldn't have put that in. I mean, it was good, good lobbying. Yeah. Because it doesn't look like any reason. Th- and I'm a, so I happen to be an RPAC major investor. I'm very proud of that. And I always like to point back to this is one of the things that your RPAC money is doing to get money in your pocket. So the, would you say the, the limit last year, I think, was three hundred and twenty-nine thousand for this. If you were married, and it's going to go up to three forty this year. So that means if your net income with and you were married was three twenty-nine or under, you get a twenty percent deduction on that income, and so that's going to equal a tax savings of fifteen thousand dollars per year if you're right at the maximum. Um, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it is a lot of money. And it's a a tricky deduction, too, because there's so many circular calculations with it. Um, If you have an S-Corp, your salary comes into play with it, too. So this is something where sit down with your accountant and figure out sort of that sweet spot for you to either tap out this deduction in that savings or the savings from having a salary in an S-Corp. Like You have to look at the big picture, and this is why not everyone should just start S-Corps. Oh, maybe (laughs) maybe we should be talking about... S corps for real estate agents because this is a highly contentious uh, I don't even subject. It. People get really into this S corp thing. I don't even really understand. Yeah. So S corps, people like S corps because they can save you money on self employment tax. So normally, if you're self employed, all of your net income is subject to self employment tax, which is about fifteen and a half percent. That's your social security tax, your Medicare tax, and as a self employed person, you pay both you're paying yeah. both the employer and the employee's portion. Well, you can deduct the Right, but you're still paying it. Um, when you're a W-2 employee, you're paying half that amount of tax. Yeah, so people like an S-Corp because they have special rules. And S-Corps are pretty new in the like world of tax. Um, but basically, as long as you're paying yourself a reasonable salary, the rest of your income doesn't pay self-employment tax. And so that has to be a salary based on sort of what someone else, you would have to pay them to do your same job. How is that determined? How is, is there- um, there's some different like industry guides for different positions, or you can just pull sort of comparable job listings online. For my clients, I like to go down and break out what they do, because especially in the case of like, like I have clients who are house flippers, and they're sort of your job is a mix of 50 different jobs. Right, yeah, so we're figuring out, you know, how low of a salary can we pay to pay the least amount of self-employment tax possible? Um, and, you know, make sense with the QBI deduction and sort of looking at all of it. With agents, it's kind of a weird one because you're already paid on a commission. So there have been some cases, some court cases on tax court that are basically saying, like, that is your reasonable salary. Like, you yeah. have shown what you earned. So there's sort of this mixed bag on if agents are allowed to do it or not. It's like everyone does it. The IRS has sort of said no against it. But a lot of good tax people are like, ah, eh, it's still sort of gray. So talk to your tax person. And also a lot of 
Well, not a lot, but I believe some brokerages also don't let you use an LLC or set it up that way. Yeah, so it'll be, um, there are certain states entirely that do not allow LLCs or S-Corps to actually receive commissions. Um, that does not that is not the case that we encounter in this area, but I think some of the northeastern states are like that. Yeah. Um, one of the court cases, though, the IRS, it was actually with an insurance salesman who's commission-based, but what the court had found there was they said, well, an individual is providing the service of selling the insurance and not, and it was impossible for an S-Corp to be providing the service, right? So in that case, I forget what the court case was, they disallowed it. And so at that point in time, I think this was around 2017, 2018, is when some tax professionals started realizing, oh, maybe agent commissions should not be in an S-Corp for this reason. Yeah, and part of the differentiating factor, too, is if you are a managing broker or just an agent. If you are just you doing selling houses, that is different than if you are managing other brokers. Because when you're a managing broker, it actually is your company providing a service as opposed to the individual providing a service. Huh? Is that why you hired us for tax savings? Um, well, no, I, I'm not a principal broker. Um, I, have a bro- I have a broker's level license, but I do not operate as a broker. So, I have a so I'm not. I do not qualify for an S corp, as my understanding. This is more philosophical, but like, what extent should the average person? Because you see a lot of people who they have like one or two properties take to save a couple thousand dollars. I often see these schemes, and I have seven LLCs in an S corp, and I'm saving three grand, and I'm like, I don't know, is that really worth it? Uh, it's not worth it for me and my yeah. blood pressure, so yeah. no. Yeah, I always <laughs> think of some of these things. Yeah, there's a lot of, and it's so funny to me because real estate is kind of this only industry. It's like there's so many. Online, like this didn't happen when I would like when I first got into tax and I worked with sort of other businesses. Like in other industries, these like elaborate structures don't exist, but in real estate, it's like it's these people with this sort of very financially savvy mindset and we're already sort of thinking outside the box. So there's this like gray line where they get into things that are just too sketchy. But you know, sometimes there is tax savings with structuring. So like talk to your tax professional, don't watch a YouTube video, go set it up (laughs) and then come back to them (laughs) because that is not the way to do it. Um, but honestly, what I will say is that is this sort of my biggest and highest earning clients do not have those setups because they take time and effort to manage and right? and money. Right? Cost. If you have if you have seven different LLCs, that's how many more well, that returns you get to do. And this is the problem from earlier where people set up LLCs and then don't maintain them correctly because they actually take a lot of time and money. So in the state of Maryland, I just did this. They require every year you got to file personal property tax. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know any, it's three hundred dollars filing fee. So then you've paid more to set it up than you're going to save. On yeah. The yeah. Oh yeah. California is eight hundred dollars per LLC, regardless of if you own the properties there. In another state, California is charging you eight hundred dollars. That's obscene. Maryland is no fee other than the personal property. Yeah. So like eight hundred dollars can wipe out all of the profit on a slim rental. And then what people don't understand too is you as an individual are filing returns. But all of those LLCs also have to file returns. Depending on how they're structured. Yeah. So like if it is a single person LLC owned by just you, it gets reported still on your personal 1040 tax return the same way. As soon as you add a second person, we've created a partnership. Or if you elect that LLC as an S corp, we've created a corporate return. And honestly, most accounting firms start at like 1500 bucks for any kind of a corporate return. And you should have actual books for it because there's so much more tracking. And so many people don't do that side of things. Um, here's a tip I'm going to throw out there. If you are looking to invest in a syndication and they do not have real financial statements, yeah. do not. <laughs> well, there's a question actually that is very relevant. 
If I have an LLC that's done no business, I don't have to file on it, do I? It's zero income and zero expenses. It's just sitting there. So if it is just a single member LLC, there's nothing to report anyway. Um, but even a partnership, like a partnership return that has two people on it, if there hasn't been any income or expenses incurred, doesn't have to file a return. And that's a that is a common thing people get fined from the IRS for is not filing that return with no income on a partnership. Is it? I I've seen number of people who post in these groups like I just got a fine from the IRS. Yeah, that's when they should be able to argue because the problem is you set it up in a way that is telling them to expect a partnership tax return. Yeah. And then you did not give them a partnership tax return. So they're going to send you a love letter and you're going to have to respond and show why you didn't file one. Um, but right now the IRS has actually halted sending out most notices for a little while. Um, don't have to pay taxes here? No taxes? Uh, no, you still do. But um, if you don't, they won't yell at you for a little bit. Because they're six months behind on processing. I find that fascinating that you mentioned that because now I feel like, now that I'm thinking, I haven't gotten any IRS notices in the past couple of years. And I usually get like, I feel like one a year that's always like a little paper audit thing saying, can you send us this? And I do. And it's usually not a big deal. And sometimes they recalculate my tax and it's like not significantly different, yeah. but I write them a check and send them in. Like but you missed one small 1099 or something. Yeah. Stock sale. Um, you had a $1.2 million loss. Yeah. But I feel like I've not gotten any of those notices during COVID. I felt like, I felt like maybe once a year I was getting them. Well, they were doing them still until they literally announced this like last week, because the problem was for accountants, they're answering less than 3% of phone calls at the IRS, but they were still sending out these notices. So clients are freaking out. They're getting notices saying their property is going to get levied on. I'm just trying to get a hold of a human. There's no one working at the IRS, but they're not like stopping the harassment. And they were just like, oh, wait, we'll stop harassing you. So they're going to pump the brakes for a minute. And so I I think this kind of goes to another point. Like when you get these notices from the IRS, I think most people's inclination is they have an anxiety attack, right? They're they're not actually that scary. No, a lot of the time it's just something. Yeah, (laughs) it's just something weird. It's like. You had an extra, let's say I brought up a 1099, like you got an extra tax form. You forgot to give your accountant. That was for $48 of interest you owned on some savings account. So they're just saying, hey, on our side, this bank said they paid you $48. Pay us our extra 40 cents of tax or whatever it is. So like most of the time. But this is our government. They're very efficient. I don't know if you know this. I think I've gotten a math error one before and they recalculated something. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, it's almost always little stuff. So don't freak out. Um, But also important. Do tell your account as soon as you get these. I often don't get told about this till they get the like angry letter one, the like fourth one where they're threatening to take the person's property. And I'm like, hey, bud, they said they first sent you a notice nine months ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did. That is the time. Yeah. You get that first one. That's when you talk to your account. Well, I'm glad you said that because I usually don't tell my account and I usually just send them the information that they've asked me for. Yes. And and not the important IRS letter. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm one of the, I, I would be one of your clients that uh, causes you a lot of stress. I imagine. Yeah, That's why yeah. I'm your client. I think yeah. so as well. <laughs> that is a fair assumption. Yeah, Natalie's constantly telling me uh, how much stress her clients. I'm like, I, I'd be one of those. <laughs> it's most real estate people. Yeah. It's just like it's the combination of being. It's like you know well, we were talking about this yesterday, knowing just enough to be dangerous. Yeah. Like that is That's real the entire bigger pockets form. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It is a dangerous place. It is the Wild West. Yeah, Yeah, there's actually a name for it. It's called Dunning-Kruger syndrome. Someone who's smart enough to know a little bit but not be an expert, and they get themselves into immense trouble. No one's opening 
florist shops to get tax benefits. Yeah. It's real estate. You always hear about the savings. So you guys get just like a little further. Is, I feel like the people doing real estate are always a different type of personality anyway. Who kind of do you want to game the system and stuff like that. It's like a different type of person. Yeah, exactly. And there's sort of a fine line. Like there's a lot of legal ways to save a lot of money on tax if you're in real estate, especially. So we do not have to um, do something super sketchy that might get you audited to save you $12. Like let's skip that idea that you heard on a YouTube video. <laughs> <laughs> there, and there is so tell us about some of the sketchy things because not only I'm sure you're seeing stupid mistakes on returns. What other really sketchy things were you like? I can't believe people are doing this, especially if they're coming from a tax professional. Like they're gonna they're gonna land someone and they're gonna land in jail at some point. And tell us some say of those. Client's name as you tell these stories that would be great. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fine. I don't even like having a license. Um. So one of the I've seen literal CPA firms. Just make up more expenses. And this was on a family member's return. They came to me because they were like, hey, we have a business. And um, when I'm looking over this, this schedule of my business income, there's just a bunch of expenses I don't recognize. And they were very, like, general numbers. You know, it was always, like, office, $7,000. And then the next year it was office, $7,200. And so I was like, okay, okay, okay. We don't want to assume your CPA is a scam artist. Let's see. Is it possible you gave them a second notice or like a second spreadsheet or a receipt or like, let's try to find this first. Couldn't, couldn't anywhere. And it was always 50, 60 grand, just about. So they emailed the accountant and they were like, Hey, we looked over this. We can't find these expenses anywhere. Where did they come from? And the response was most of my clients like not owing tax. So like, and this was a CPA who had been licensed for 30 years. And what's Um, the motivation? They're going to get paid the same basic rate, whether they, um, people associate paying less taxes with a better tax professional. You get more money. Sure. But there are tax professionals who then will just make things up. You'll see this a lot on Facebook groups where they're like, maximum refund guaranteed. We have the same tax laws. <laughs> if you are getting someone more than I can legally, you are making something up. Yeah. So that's why it's important to look at your return because like, they looked at it and they were like, I didn't have another 50 grand of expenses. This doesn't match my QuickBooks. This so, isn't from anywhere else. So they just took these amounts to write off because they, she said her clients don't like paying taxes. Yeah. That's like the quote I was saying earlier. Just fluffing stuff up. What, uh, wasn't there a, this other return that you had done where the tax professional like included themselves in a partnership or something? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I've seen all kinds of weird stuff. So th- I don't remember exactly what that business was for. But yeah, the tax professional listed themselves as a like 0.00001% owner on this LLC so that they could file on a partnership because partnerships have a lower audit rate. Because first I'm talking to this client and he's like, not a, not a real finance savvy guy. And I'm like, what do you mean you have a partnership with who? And he's like, it's just me. And I'm like, well, you're just one. Who is your partner? And he's like, oh, the accountant put themselves down. And I was like, yeah, oh, why? Why did they do that? And so, oh, I remember what it was. It was he... Um, there was like a tiny bit of like recreational coaching. Like they coached a, a youth soccer league or girls tennis or some kind of small thing, four grand a year. But every year there was this loss of about 25 grand on this partnership. So this accountant created a fake partnership with himself to make a partner. Um, and then just make, cause I was like, do you have 20 grand of ex- house? I don't know what sports cost, but like $20,000. And he was like, no. So he had no idea. He had no idea. So for years, he had just been getting this $20,000 write-off. The accountant's charging him to file a second partnership return that's not real, not needed, and only there for this weird circular tax fraud. Like, why? Sounds bad. Why? Yeah. It also sounds incredibly stupid that the 
tax professional would include themselves as part of the partnership instead of someone else. Like, like get your friend or because like not only is it clear you. you're the one that's being shady as hell, but you're actually putting your name in. Like, yeah, I was like, well, this is this going to be an interesting one to unravel because yeah. he is both the wrongdoer and the partner. Yeah. So we've now got to, uh, yeah. So there, there's and this is the thing is there's these levels from like blatantly fraudulent to like eh, my accountant just didn't know real estate, missed some stuff that a real estate specialized professional would to oh, so fun thing you don't actually need to have any kind of a license to do taxes. There are people who literally just take a weekend course. There'll be like a thing on Facebook that's like $99. You can make a hundred grand in four months. Sign up. We're going to teach you. Yeah, it sounds awesome, right? And then they just give you software and tell you where to find clients. Like if your person owns a tax prep slash dog grooming slash eyebrow microblading business, (laughs) that is not a tax (laughs) professional. Maybe they're just really, really smart. (laughs) I mean, maybe, maybe. But like, look at. Look at their background. Look at anything first. Like, don't just go there because a friend went there. Don't, I, I don't know. But there's these various levels of mistakes from, like, what is literal fraud, just a little bit of a real estate error, shouldn't be allowed to touch a tax return, shouldn't be allowed, like, Present. some of what I've seen is just, like, who keeps this person from, like, putting forks and outlets on the day-to-day? Like, it's so wrong. So you've really got to vet your tax people and make sure that they know real estate and are have experience, that they are a tax professional and not just someone – who wanted to start a side hustle, hashtag girl boss doing taxes. Why are you looking at me? Mind your business. (laughs) So one thing I want to ask you about uh, while we've got you here, because we actually talked about you on this podcast a few weeks ago um, when we were, when we were interviewing Sarah, Um, we we talked mad shit about you. Yeah. But we were, we were talking about the fact that, um, I see this online all the time. There are people that are clearly misogynistic attacking you and mm-hmm. mansplaining to you. And they're always these doofuses. Yeah. Um, what's it like being a woman in a world that's probably right. I think most tax professionals, at least superficially seem to, to be men, right? So you're, you're, a, you're an incredibly smart woman in a job dominated by mostly men. Yeah, and with real estate investors even more, that's a male-dominated sector. It is. So what I'll say, so one of my favorite kind of stories I got told, right, was a couple years ago, um, have a new client call with a scal, and we're talking, like, call goes great. And at the end, she's like, I have to tell you, the reason I reached out to you was you saved me on a post on Bigger Pockets, And I was like, okay, all right, this sounds cool. What did I do? <laughs> I'm very interested in this. It's so often you don't even remember. Yeah. yeah, like, all right, I post on Bigger Pockets a lot. And she was like, yeah, I had researched something on real estate. I posted it. I thought I really had it figured out. I had all these facts. And all these guys were telling me it was wrong. I was an idiot. This would never work because it was something tax-related loosely. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was like, and then you showed up at the post, told them they were idiots, told them if they weren't qualified to not comment on tax matters, explained why I was right, and told them to just not assume Women were wrong just because they posted. So we had to work with you. And I was like, oh, good. So that is what it is like. <laughs> it yeah. is a lot of that. And I don't know why. I don't I feel like you get the most shit of almost anywhere in bigger pocket. Yeah, kind of. And it's, I think, a little bit because I tend to say things kind of dryly. So, like, someone will write something super sketchy and I won't go into it. And I'll just be like, oh, this post is giving me agita. Or, like, <laughs> I yeah, can't. You have to manage the mail ego. You, you can't just tell them they're wrong. You have to very nicely explain it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a tricky thing 
because it's like, at least on the bigger pockets forums, there's like a little thing there that's like, this person has 4,000 posts about tax in the last eight years or whatever. Like maybe listen. To and it has your signature line saying what you do is a profession. Yeah. Podcast guests, yeah. like all of these things on Facebook. Like I said, there's just, people just love fighting on Facebook. So there's so much more of it. So I've, it's really hard because you want to help people and you don't want them to get the wrong information. So it's like, I will give them the correct information. And then, I mean, I think it's, I don't you guys know. Are real asshole. You have bad information. Like you should do this. And it's like, if I can be indicted. It's hard, but it's, I don't know if it's, I mean, it is kind of just a boys club industry, <laughs> just all in all. And there's sort of some of that where there's posts online. I think where stuff that women find offensive, the guys don't. And then it's like, Hey, Natalie, you're a female moderator. Does this offend you or does this not? Is this it's like, uh, but and usually day, there's not too much that offends you either. Like other than stupidity. Yeah. Well, and it, it carries over. Like what's weird to me is when people book calls with me, like as they want to hire me as their tax professional and then talk over me the whole time or say something like blah, 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 blah. Do you get what I'm explaining? Do you understand that? They're mansplaining like, to you while they're trying to hire you to be the expert that they are not the, that they can't do themselves. Yeah. So it's a weird. It's very weird. Yeah. But here's the cool thing. Um, working with a professional is a two-way street. And I think people need to realize this. So while, yes, as a professional, we try to obviously attract clients and you want to present yourself in a certain way, as the other side of it, a professional can choose not to work with you. And there's a lot of people who don't realize that. And there's a lot of people who post some pretty questionable things online and or do things like that. Like if the first day we talked, you decided that my experience and knowledge had no value and you just wanted to sound like the smartest guy in the room. Um, I'm not super inclined to want to take that further. (laughs) So you've got to realize too, it's a two way street. I just saw a, a, I was looking up a friend's CPA firm and they had a a one-star review and I was like, that's shocking. This person is incredible at taxes. And the one-star review was that they are no longer taking new clients. And who does that? Um, Like busy, busy, good professionals often. This hit restaurant won't take my reservation. They're too busy. Yeah, yeah. like I they, they won't squeeze me in the corner restaurant. where there's no chairs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it is a two way street, and so like you can you can present that way on the internet, and you can mansplain things to me on Facebook. And if your mansplaining doesn't save you in an audit, I am not also likely to save you in an audit. Yeah, I do I do think like for some particular reason, Facebook does seem to be where most the BS happens for some reason, right? Like I feel like other, other mediums are, I don't know, maybe I'm just I think it's, fooling myself. I think but, it's less moderated. You probably would have the same problem on bigger pockets. If it was, less well, I, mean, I just mean, even in the bigger pockets, Facebook groups, which we do mm-hmm. moderate, like I feel like there are a hundred times more posts we have to remove there than on bigger pockets. Yeah. Um, it is a weird thing. And, but you're kind of right too, with the moderation part is we were just talking about this earlier, how it's sort of like, you want them to be able to shut a post down if an expert comes and comments. Like, if a literal tax professional gives the correct answer, turn it off. Like, there you go. No one else gets to you don't want people to keep arguing with you. tell you imaginary things because however they heard it. But Facebook's all about engagement. So it's like, eh, I'll let these guys argue that you can capital gains a flip as long as you hold it for a year and, you know, light four incense on the day at list market. I don't is that, know. Can I do that? Is, that? is that advice you're giving me? I mean, you can do whatever you like. <laughs> But the outcome is not uh, not my responsibility. So anyways, we're kind of uh, drawing long here. So 
we're going to wrap this up. But Natalie, tell us where. So remember, this is not the time of the year to be contacting Natalie to be your tax professional. And she might not want, you know, you might not even be a good fit for anyways, but you should be reaching out to tax professionals. What time of the year? Towards your, I mean, towards your end, just not during tax season. Yeah. Like once it is already January. You're working 100 hours a week up until April 15th. Yeah, leave me alone till springtime. Yeah. Um, but tell us where, where people can reach you, where they can find out more about you. Yeah, colotax.com um, is the website, and that is kind of the best way to get a hold of me. Um, there is right now a wait list to be a client, so you could join that if you're interested in working together for next year. Um, you can find me on Facebook. You can just add me as Natalie. There's a, a Facebook business page, too, for Kaladi Tax and Consulting, but I honestly yeah. just kind of add everyone on there. And how about Instagram? We have a lot of Instagram followers that uh, listen to the podcast. Yeah, tax Instagrams are shockingly not exciting, but you are welcome to find <laughs> me there. There's not a lot of good visuals. Um, but I believe the Instagram is Kaladi Tax Boss, and I'm now on TikTok. Try to find me on TikTok. That's R-E Tax Strategist. Oh, I, li- I like that. That's a nice, simple... Uh, thing to find right yeah yeah there you go there's no (laughs) silent letters in that one (laughs) so anyways we're going to wrap up we're going to talk to you guys next week and thanks for listening thanks for listening to the dc real estate podcast we hope you enjoyed the show if you want to contact the hosts, reach out to them at info at dcrealestatepodcast.com Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you access your podcasts.